Hey, I'm Jay Akunzo, and this is Unthinkable. In the information age, so often we feel that we're at this information disadvantage. You know, there's there's just so much stuff swirling around us at all times, so much conventional wisdom, and so much advice. So stop me if the following internet experience sounds familiar to you. Actually, you know what? Don't don't stop me because then you'll you'll stop listening to the show or or you'll be trying to talk out loud telling a voice in your ears to stop talking to you which i guess might not make you crazy in our day and age because people could just assume that if you have headphones in you're on a, a phone call man we live in such interesting technological times don't we wait what were we what were we talking about oh right okay this familiar internet experience that i had in this era of information overload that we face here's what happened a few years ago, I was writing an ebook for my work, and the last thing that I had to do was design the cover. So I decided, well, it's an ebook about creating content, so I'll go to Google Images and search for pencil icons, right? It's, it's about creation and, and writing, and so I thought I'd find a pencil icon and put it on the cover. And I found this very simple icon that had a pencil drawing on a notepad. And then I realized that what I actually liked about this icon was the notepad itself. It's more evocative of creating content, right? It's, it's got many pages, lots of stuff going on there. And I thought, okay, cool. Notepads would be a better icon for my ebook cover than the pencil. So I went back to Google Images and searched for notepad icons. And then what I found was just all these notepad icons. There's yellow ones and blue ones and icons with white backgrounds and icons with no background. And then I thought, okay, you know what? The one in the second row, the black one, that's the one I really like. So I right-clicked it and hovered over the save image option. But, but then I glanced to the right on the page and right alongside this icon I liked was a section titled Related Images. So wait a second. You mean there's, there's more? There's more! There are more images like the one that I liked. So I, I click to explore that because there's more like the one I like. And, and what if I'm missing the best one? I mean, it's out there somewhere. I gotta find it for my ebook cover. So, okay, I'm searching through all of this. And then I thought, wait a second, what am I even doing here? I mean, I'm not a designer. I'm a writer. I'm a podcaster. I don't know graphic design from a hole in the head. So, how do you design an ebook cover anyway? Well, maybe I could just go to Google search and look for some examples. Yeah, that's that's the ticket. So I went to Google search and I searched for some examples for ebook covers. And as I scrolled through the search results, I found one from Pinterest listing examples of ebook covers. And I thought, aha, Pinterest. Yes, I know Pinterest. I got married a few years ago and we used it for design information and we got ideas to decorate our apartment using it. And it's great for inspirational things. So yeah, I'll go to Pinterest. Great. Yes, getting stuff done. I'll create a collection of the best ebook examples I can find and then use that to inspire my own cover design. Great. But then I realized, oh wait, the Pinterest login was my wife's, not mine, so I have to create a Pinterest account. So so I create a Pinterest account. <laughs> I'm 30 minutes into this process and I haven't done jack squat. I mean, I've started by trying to use all that information out there that's so readily available to all of us. And that information just owned me. It just paralyzed me. And the worst part is that I didn't even realize I was actually paralyzed. It felt like I was moving. It felt like I was running towards my destination, but I was really on like a treadmill. I think that's what all of this searching for expert advice as our starting point tends to do to us. We feel like we're making progress, but we're just kind of running in place. I'd tried, like so many other people in my shoes, to use everybody else's answers and ideas to build something that I wanted to be proud about. And the entire time, I'd built nothing. And instead of feeling proud, 
I felt foolish. But what might happen if we went back to the beginning here with my original intent, the intent to finish my ebook, to create a great cover? What if you had an aspiration, a small one like shipping an ebook or a big one like building a great company? But, but what if when you had that aspiration, instead of immediately looking for what others would say is the right approach, you looked for your own answers from within? What might happen then? Last time, we talked about this unthinkable leap that we all face whenever we aspire to do something exceptional. You get all this conventional thinking on the side that we're on, you got this big chasm in front of you, and away in the distance is something that you imagine to be great. And rather than look for some hack or secret to be able to jump over there in one motion, last time we established that the best approach is to build a bridge. Makes sense. And our intuition is the tool we can use to do that. It's, it's the hammer. And the way you begin to swing that hammer to use that tool called intuition is to ask yourself the right questions. Don't start by obsessing over everybody else's answers. Ask yourself the right questions. Because remember, our definition of intuition on this show is the ability to find answers from within. It's the process of thinking for yourself. And asking yourself the right questions unlocks that. So let's start to build that bridge right now. What questions do you ask yourself to trust your intuition? Well, the first is this. What is your aspiration? Because the first thing you do when you build a bridge is you throw this anchor across to the other side and it plants firmly in the ground and lets you know where you're going to build your bridge and it helps you start building across as you pull that anchor taut. So what is your aspirational anchor? Today, We're replaying an older story through that lens, because I think now we can really make sense of that story. And I want you to pay special attention to this idea of aspirations. Where does it come out in the story? What does it do to people's behavior? And what creates that aspiration? I'll come back at the end and we'll talk through all that stuff. But for now, let's dive in to one of our most popular stories ever, the story of Lisa Schneider, the chief digital officer at Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. When I tell people that I work for the dictionary, unanimously, unanimously, the first thing they answer with is, oh my God, that's so cool. But cool was not at all how you describe Merriam-Webster's marketing. Specifically, their all-important Twitter account. But don't take my word for it. We have a whole book full of words right here with us, after all. Here are just a few of those words that Lisa and her team have really used to describe their early marketing attempts. Stayed. Stayed. Adjective. Marked by settled sedateness and often prim self-restraint. Predictable. Predictable. Adjective. To declare or indicate in advance. Bland. Bland. Adjective, not irritating, stimulating, or invigorating. I came in and I was having this great time. And then I looked at our social media feeds that were really bland and pre-programmed and not at all interactive. And there was this huge disconnect. Every morning, the company would tweet a word of the day. Every evening, they'd share a quiz testing your knowledge of definitions over and over. Every morning, every evening. Day, 
after day, after day, after day. But something just wasn't adding up for Lisa. So here, everybody I meet thinks that working at the dictionary is this great, really interesting thing. And and not all the people I meet are word nerds. I mean, I'm totally a word nerd, but I do talk to other people. And lexicographers... Lexicographer, noun, authors or editors of a dictionary. ...are very interesting because they have to follow language change. Contrary to popular belief... Dictionaries are not responsible for preserving a sacred set of rules about our language. That rigidness that you're probably picturing is more appropriate for a grammar stickler. Oh, and by the way, Oxford commas or get out. But uh, yeah, lexicographers are much different. We, we call ourselves descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not our job to sit up there in an ivory tower and tell people what words should mean. We catalog language as it is used. And so in order to be open and objective and interested enough to follow language change, you have to be both very engaged in, in all of this and, and very open um, to change and very funny. So where people might assume that, you know, it's a dusty book on a shelf and it's a bunch of stuffy people, you know, kind of defending language as it should be. The truth is really the opposite. These people are fun, witty and wonderful. But despite all that they were still posting that boring stuff to Twitter. That stayed, predictable, bland stuff. Fixing something like that would surely take a shift of Brobdingnagian proportions. Brobdingnagian. Adjective. Marked by tremendous size. Think we should just stick with ginormous. Easy dictionary. You're descriptive, not prescriptive. Take it down a notch. Lisa and Merriam-Webster faced a big problem. They had to improve upon that vapid voice on Twitter and really in all of their content. Now, today, it's never been easier to just copy what someone else does or to find a set of influences that you can use to build upon. But that's a fine line, copying versus using influences. It's a funny thing, finding your own voice. There's that fine line between being inspired by someone else and just being a cheap imitation of them. But as always, I don't think it's the tactic so much as how you approach the tactic. Or, emphasized better here as your narrator, how you approach the tactic. When you combine intentions and hunger, I think you get an aspiration. You plan for something to happen in the future, it's your intent to make it happen, and you're not satisfied with what's happening now. You're hungry for change, for something more. Intention plus hunger equals an aspiration. And if you anchor to the right aspiration, man, you give yourself something seriously powerful, your own unique context. A sort of filter through which all your influences and all the generic expert advice out there must pass. Because things that influence or things that instruct, they all now serve your context, your aspiration, all to varying degrees. I think that's the difference between standing on the shoulders of giants and leaning against them like crutches. In the case of Merriam-Webster, 
they were doing what most of us do, anchoring to what works. But it wasn't aspirational enough. What works on Twitter in the generic sense is what they were doing. Post consistently, pre-schedule all your stuff, and link back to your site. That is not aspirational enough. And that is why Lisa Schneider decided to throw another aspirational anchor away into the future to begin a transfiguration of the entire brand. Transfiguration. Noun. An exalting, glorifying, or spiritual change. I can't tell you why. They were posting word of the day in the morning and a call to action to play a game in the afternoon and nothing else. And, you know, it's called social media. Like you can talk to people (laughs) and and there was none of that sociability and there was none of that tone that you hear in the office. And I couldn't tell you why. I can just tell you that it was really clear to me that there was this huge gap and we were missing out on an amazing opportunity to, in fact, show everybody how cool we really are. That is a great aspirational anchor. Let's show the world how cool we really are. There's intent, there's hunger, and there's one very powerful result when you have a great aspirational anchor. It makes your work personal. You know, the dictionary is made by people. And so these people were so fun and so smart and so entertaining. One of the first really brilliant things that somebody did was this what we call our emoji thread, which is using emoji to illustrate the difference between words that sound alike, but either are, you know, homophones or homographs, either words that sound alike, but are different words or words that are spelled the same, but are still different words. An example was um, palate, as in, you know, your taste. P-A-L-A-T-E, with a tongue emoji right next to it. Um, Palette, as in something that you have your paintbrush on. P-A-L-E-T-T-E, plus a little paint palette emoji right next to it. And, and palette is in a stockpile of things or something that you, that you sleep on. P-A-L-L-E-T, with a little yellow face and some Zs coming out of it. And so that was really just fun and clever. It was a clever way of looking at language and a clever way of illustrating commonly confused terms. And that did really well. But we knew that we needed to get a dedicated social media manager in order to really accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And so when we did that and when we hired somebody to do that full time is when it really took off. Their new hire, appropriately enough, came through Twitter. A woman named Lauren Naturale saw the posting and immediately reached out to Lisa. And this is somebody who is, you know, way overeducated in in the field of English academically. She has a master's. She almost had a PhD. She taught English for a while. And so this was somebody who really um, deeply understood our mission and, and cared about it and was passionate about our mission, who had the grasp of, of language in order to be able to be quick. I mean, we've got a whole team of people on Slack backing um, each other up. And so, you know, if there's a question, if something happens, there's always a lot of chatter like, oh, someone asked this on Twitter, what should I say? And and so in terms of some of the real details of defining or words or why we've done something, there's plenty of support there. But there is somebody on the front lines who can do a lot of this without anything checking, without having to do research. And so if you would hire somebody who had this great social media track record, but didn't have these skills, I don't believe that the effect same. And it's on on the outside looking at it's so creative 
and there's such a clear personality. But the things that are making it great are not like channel specific. In other words, you can have a great tone of voice through any medium. How did you guys land on focusing on Twitter? Because I see a lot of brands that are going to spread too thin across a million different channels. And so you have this insight. Now you actually have a dedicated person. Why was it Twitter uh, versus like a little bit everywhere? We already were on Twitter and Facebook. And so it made sense to start where we were. And the Twitter just honestly took off. It just was, again, it was this really natural organic fit because I think this idea of being sassy in real time, of answering somebody in the minute, autocorrect has no idea of the power of teenage girls to change language or, you know, coming up on Memorial Day and being like, hmm, there's a hot dog a sandwich. Hmm. Let's let's look at the evidence and decide if hot dog a sandwich. And then we're having this conversation. And so we post it and, and everything that we do is very real time. And and words can be very relevant in real time. And so this is a true story. This hot dog is a sandwich. And so we wrote something about is a hot dog a sandwich. And we posted it before Memorial Day. And oh my God, I did not know people have such strong and deeply held convictions <laughs> about whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich. And this <laughs> this was is like America. It's America. This is America. <laughs> and so this was like a thing, you know, with capital T. And like we got press coverage for this. This was our first, this was actually our first big thing was was a, is a hot dog a sandwich this is unbelievable because like if you turn to most people that market brands they assume they need a giant budget no creative constraints at all they got to be on every channel and you guys are like setting up constraint after constraint it's like here's the tone of voice it's us i see it in slack put it out there it's twitter it's you know like you guys are clearly just doing what feels natural and it does have this kind of elevated like i don't know amazing creativity to it well, I think there are a couple of things, you know, one is, and, you know, hardly the first person to note this, which is sometimes greater creativity happens with smaller parameters. Amen. Amen. Yes. So, so you need to really narrow down your focus and then knock that thing out of the park. And so that's one piece. And, and the other piece is, I think that Again, you have to know sort of what your power is. And I think for us, the power is connecting language to people's everyday. And speaking of everyday. Merriam-Webster's Twitter account has been taking subtle jabs at President Trump. Merriam-Webster has trolled Trump in the past. They poked fun when he invented a word unprecedented in a missive about China. And they went after Kellyanne Conway for the phrase alternative facts. Clearly, Merriam-Webster has an anti-Trump bias. Day after day, as candidate and then President Trump and his associates would spout all these things that may or may not have been based in reality, spoiler, the answer is not, Merriam-Webster would tweet all this related stuff. As for bias, however, not so much. As events unfold, they, it drives people to the dictionary. And so we get what we call these trending lookups, which is a word that is not usually looked up at a very high volume, is suddenly being looked up at an exceedingly high volume. Words like, and this is all true, fascism, demagogue, and even facts were all trending. And so we report on that. And that's really interesting because it's real time. And I think that's another reason that Twitter has been a good platform for us, because 
when you want to know what a word means, you kind of want to know what it means yeah. at, at the minute that you want to know. Right. And it's very real time. And, you know, if something's happening, if the Cubs are playing in the World Series and the announcer says, irregardless. Oh, my gosh, I'm shuddering. I'm an English lit major. Settle the, okay. settle the score here. Yeah. Join the club. Um, so the announcer said, irregardless. And everybody went first to Twitter to say, oh, my God, I can't believe he said irregardless. Irregardless is not a word. Yes. And then they went to the dictionary to confirm that it's not a word. Um, and I'm sorry to say that yep. irregardless is a word. Right. And it's because of the colloquial usage, no? Like you said, you're descriptivist, not prescriptive. Exactly. And it's because so many people started to use it, I'm guessing, right? Is that what happened? That That is exactly correct. Mm. Um, and it's also marked as non-standard. To be clear, that's non-standard, not alternative. And so this reporting on trending lookups, plus the hilarious voice they use to deliver those facts, again, facts, caused a public frenzy. Merriam-Webster more than doubled their followers. They're up to 410,000 at the time of this recording. Update, that's actually 519,000 right now. 519,000. And they even grew their impression total 6,000% and their media placements 7,000% year over year. Because who is covering a dictionary in the press? Turns out today, everybody. The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Slate.com, USA Today, Fox News, ABC News, NBC News, The New York Times, even Vogue. Vogue, you guys. Vogue. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary is literally in vogue. Lisa set out with her aspiration and her team to make that dictionary cool again. And to that, I'd say, mission accomplished. Very quickly, this became, and I sort of hate this word, but it did start becoming viral. I mean, we didn't, I will say, we didn't, we have not spent any money to acquire followers at all. Wow. We don't any promoted posts. We haven't sent anything out. It's been totally organic. People have often described us as sassy, and I think that that's true. But I think the key is that we're sassy with a purpose, and we're smart and grounded, and that we take our mission very seriously. And, and that's such a hard thing to strike, that if I were to say to you, can you come up with a tone in your writing, whatever channel you're using, Twitter or otherwise, that is both funny and profound? I feel like you would trip all over yourself trying to manufacture this, right? Like, do you, it seems like you benefit totally. from it being authentic, being you. Totally. I, I had this conversation recently with somebody who asked a similar question, which is, you know, how would you define it? But they were trying to make it retroactive as if I sat there and said, this is how our voice is going to be. And I kind of ticked off these boxes yeah. and made all it a list and passed it around the staff. And I agree with you that that wouldn't have worked. It would have sounded really good on paper and it never would have worked. You know, think about the advice that you get as a child as you're growing up. You know, be you. No one else can be you. Don't copy this guy and don't copy that guy. Just be yourself. And I think understanding what is unique about who you are and what you have to bring and what your message is and really um, communicating that in, in an open and transparent way is very powerful. People respond to other people that are open and transparent and, and I think to a certain extent giving, right? We have all of this expertise at Merriam-Webster and we want to share it with everybody. We, you know, we want to help people. We certainly want them to love language as much as we do and people can tell 
And the only reason it works is because it's not a marketing construct. It's who we really are. Okay, uh, present day me here. And I mean, awesome, right? Like what a great story that Lisa and Merriam-Webster has. What a great thing that they did and where they found their answers to do that awesome stuff. It just speaks to the ability to set aside what others would do and to instead start with what you would do. And really, they started with who they are. Then they went to what they would do because of who they are. So Merriam-Webster achieved all that success thanks to starting with an aspiration, that first piece of the bridge that we build with our intuition. What is your aspiration? For Lisa, it was a clear and simple statement. Let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. What is your aspirational anchor? For Lisa, it was a clear and simple statement. Let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. And all that bland and predictable and staid stuff that they were sharing wasn't really them anyway. So we need something else here if we're Lisa and her team. Now, what the average executive would have done in her shoes instead is they would have started building a bridge basically to nowhere. They would have said something like, let's go viral. Or maybe, let's grow our Twitter reach. Or, let's target influencers. But not Lisa. Instead, Lisa threw her anchor to the other side of that chasm where exceptional work lives, and she said, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. So, what does this aspirational anchor do for us? Well, these anchors create a sort of unique context, a filter through which we can view the world. Just by articulating that aspiration, we can now make sense of all that advice out there, and all the stuff we've been doing, and all the ideas we have to move forward, all the stuff in the world can get pressed through that filter. Some things will make it through, and some things will get stuck. For Merriam-Webster, that meant the boring stuff got stuck in that filter. The conventional thinking of trying to manufacture virality also got stuck. But what made it through was all that fun, funny, and sarcastic but smart stuff. Because that was showing the world how fun and relevant the team really is. When we aspire to be exceptional, instead of all that average junk out there, it's so easy for us to drown in a sea of advice. I want to build that thing. And I can even picture it away in the future. And it's going to be great, but uh, how, do I, how do I do that? How do I go from where I am now to that amazing thing because right now it's just a dream it's just a desire i'm over here and that thing is over there how can i get across in those situations it's tempting to go looking for the answer if you just do this you can then jump from where you stand and land on the other side i don't buy it though i would actually go so far as to say that anything someone says you should do especially if it's a tactic is a false promise I mean, maybe the only caveat there is if someone says, think for yourself. But if they hold up an idea or an answer, and they say this, you have to do this, and they don't know your own context, then it's just generalized advice. Because there are no general secrets and hacks. Even the cliched hustle culture that perpetuates the modern business world, especially the startup world where I'm from, all that screaming of of just hustle, that's packaged like a silver bullet. 
It may seem like they're saying there's no hack, there's only hard work, but hustle itself is being promised as the hack. It's the solution. If you just work your face off, you'll get where you're trying to go. Ah, I, I, don't, I mean, that's part of it. But reality is always more nuanced. It's always more gray. Maybe some people need a more balanced life. Maybe instead of someone screaming at you to hustle, you're more motivated with positive, uplifting things. I don't know. It's just, it's a messier reality than one person screaming one thing as the answer. So, think for yourself. Break from all that conventional thinking and trust your intuition to get across that leap. But as you do so, don't try to jump over it. Instead, build that bridge. Ask yourself a series of questions to pull out your answers from within. And that first question again is what is your aspirational anchor? Intent plus hunger equals an aspiration. Here's mine. I'd like to help others do more exceptional things by finding and following what makes them an exception. And in my mind, that's your intuition. So that is my aspirational anchor. And my question to you is, What's yours? And now that you've thrown that anchor, now that you know where you're trying to go and you're committing to asking questions and thinking for yourself, you got to find some firm footing just out over the edge by asking yourself the next question on the bridge, our very next episode on the show. Unthinkable is written and hosted by me, Jay Akunzo, and uh, I am now officially in Queens, New York new location loving it so far Um, be sure you subscribe at unthinkable.fm to get everything we share every week and if you have any feedback on the show just hit reply when you get my welcome note or the weekly email that i send every monday i read and reply to every single email i i promise you i do all right that's our show this week but don't just take my word for it because i'm just a boy standing here in front of you asking you to trust your intuition. But more on that next time. For now, here's your space to feel stuff.